Uh, anyways, John 12, 1 through 11, if you have uh, your Bibles, just turn there. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 300 denarii is actually about a year's wages, right? So very expensive ointment. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, as we look at this passage, uh, we don't see the, the word uh, worship explicitly found here. But it's not hard to see that Mary's response to Jesus was actually an act of worship in light of the fact that Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And Mary must have had some inclination, some intuition that this is not just some rabbi nor some teacher, but that he could be, uh, you know, divine in, in his essence. And, you know, I think it's safe to assume that Mary would not have poured out this expensive perfume that was worth, as I shared, about a year's wages on the feet, right? Not on the head, right? But on the feet of someone she just considered to be a good person. And in this very extravagant display of love, we see what true worship and devotion should look like in the followers of Christ. And as we think about this narrative, three aspects of worship that I want us to focus on, and they are first, the nature of worship. What is worship? What is it that we do, you know, week by week and hopefully day by day? Uh, What are the barriers to worship? And third, what is the cost of worship? And the word worship actually comes from a longer English word, worship. And essentially, it describes the act of ascribing value to something or someone and assessing its worth. And this is something that we do on a regular basis in life, don't we? And uh, we are always evaluating you know, whether something is a good deal or not. And I don't know about you, but I love the feeling when I you know, buy something or get something that I know is worth far more than what I paid for, right? Don't you, like, when you go shopping and you find something, like, for, like, three bucks that's worth, like, a hundred, it's like, oh, I got such a a great deal. My wife is incredibly good at at that. On the flip side, uh, if you feel ripped off, right, and, and you get something, you pay more, right, than it's actually worth, you feel horrible, about it, right? It's like, I don't know about you, but it begins to eat me up. And yet, I think, you know, more and more as I think about these things, I recognize that value ultimately is relative in the world that we live in. And, you know, this is why we have the old cliche, one man's trash is another man's treasure. And essentially, people are very poor evaluators 
of what things are really worth. And a, a case in point, we were having a dinner at, at Pastor Ulysses' house, and I'm not sure why the conversation turned to uh, Bitcoin, uh, but maybe it was Noah, actually. Noah asked a, a great question, right? Why in the world is this thing worth so much, right? Uh, if you don't know, it's, I think it's worth like $50,000 right now, right, for one Bitcoin. And, you know, as an interesting fact, at one of our early uh, kind of Christmas uh, parties, uh, there was someone who actually gave a, a Bitcoin uh, during um, one of Rainus' early uh, parties. And whoever got that Bitcoin, I'm sure he's very, very grateful at, at this point. Anyways, right, PU tried to explain to Noah that, you know, most things in this world are assigned an arbitrary value. For example, you know, why, you know, is gold worth what it is, right? Who knows, right? None of us know why it's worth what it is. But that is not the case with God and his kingdom. These are treasures worth more than the most precious pearl, more than all the gold in the world, more than all the Bitcoin that has ever been mined, even more valuable than our, our lives. But admittedly, it's hard for us to believe this, isn't it? Or even to accept it. I think cognitively, right, we think, okay, if God exists, if he is a creator of this universe, if he did what he did for us and was resurrected on behalf of our sin, yes, he is worth all these things and more. But again, it's hard for us to receive that unless, unless we have personally experienced the beauty of God in our lives and in our worship and have come to a deep appreciation for the true value and worth of God and all that he offers. And it is, I believe, the rare individual that truly understands the worth of God and lives his or her life in accordance to those priorities. And I think we're all on that journey, right, of learning how to live in accordance uh, to the value of God. And I think part of the problem is the way that we do worship often in the contemporary church. And I think our answer for the very stoic worship of a past generation has been kind of a, a more of a casual Come as you are attitude towards God. That makes worship easy, but not necessarily worthwhile, right? It's often easy to come in, but often we don't leave feeling like, you know what, that time was well spent. And, you know, there's an old Latin phrase that emphasizes the importance of congregational worship and prayer in the spiritual development of the believer. And the phrase, I should have put it up there, is lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. In essence, it means that the way you worship informs the, what you believe, which in turn shapes the way you live, right? And so what we do here is incredibly important, amen? Very, very important because it ultimately shapes what you believe and how you'll live this Christian life. And in contemporary Christianity, extravagant worship is often equated with the extent and quality of its production. We assume a stage of good musicians like the one that we had this morning, accompanied by maybe floodlights, special effects, playing in front of a filled auditorium, constitutes worship that is acceptable and worthy of God. And I think many of us enjoy those types of corporate worship, and I would, I would include myself as a fan of church services that are well put together. I love them. I love going into a big conference or a big church and, you know, the worship fills the room and there's like spotlights. You know, it like it gets me going. However, I think Christ 
seems to prefer something far more intimate and personal than simply a good performance in his name. And the anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary is a display of personal extravagance that is rare and uncommon to the modern Christian. And you know the thought, the very thought of pouring out expensive ointment that's valued at this price would seem excessive and perhaps even a waste, uh, even if it was meant to cover the feet of our Savior. And perhaps if we were there, we would have said the same words as Judas, that this money could have been used better, right? It could have been used to serve the poor. And I think there are times when our pragmatic and utilitarian view of the gospel keeps us from lavishing Christ with our personal devotion and love. And you know what we know is that love is often inefficient, right? It's not often you know, very uh, cost effective. And love is expressed through extravagance that can often be mistaken as a waste. And this is the only way to explain why men will use three, four, five months of their salary on average to buy a ring that will spend most of his time in a jewelry box, right? Could you, but could you imagine, right, those of you who are married, engaged, if your fiancé or husband showed up and said, well, here's a cubic zirconium, right? I got it for like 50 bucks because the rest we can use for the poor, right? And that's the right answer, right? You know, that's, you know, you're thinking, you know, that's the right thing to do. But it's not, oddly enough, because love demands something else, doesn't it? Uh, in the very same way, you know, uh, my wife is a foodie. She loves to go out to eat, but I tend to be a little more pragmatic. And I think, you know what? Spending $100 on a, you know, on a meal, 200 for both of us, well, that seems a little rich, right? That seems a little bit excessive. But because I love her and because we spent years and years of marriage together, you know, I will pour out my love. <laughs> just kidding. I, I do. Uh, but imagine if I said, you know what, honey, let's just go to McDonald's because, you know what, this money could be used for the poor, right? And so what sounds good, right, theoretically in our, our heads and in our minds, actually when it comes to a display of love, it makes you actually less loving, less extravagant towards the one you love. And so in the same way, we see that Mary is pouring out her love upon Jesus in a way that doesn't make sense to those who have never experienced this love who are not in a love relationship with Christ. And by anointing his feet with this ointment, washing them with her hair, Mary fills the room with the sweet fragrance of her worship. And each Sunday, we have an opportunity to express our devotion to the Lord in this way, to be able to pour out our love, to give him the extravagant worship that he is so worthy of. And I hope that that's how you come into a, a service like this. And obviously, it's hard to, I realize. We all have busy lives, you know, our, our schedules are, are filled, and we often rush into our, our worship, not thinking, you know what, I'm here to extravagantly worship Christ. But I hope and I pray that that will be the case for renewal. And that actually brings us to the second point, which are the barriers to worship, right? What keeps us then from worshiping in this way? And you know, there are certainly many obstacles, I think, that keep us from entering into the presence of God. Uh, but I think our pride 
tends to be one of the main problems. And I think the difference between Mary and Judas in this passage is really a difference in their attitude towards Christ. And Mary, what we see is she completely humbles herself at the foot of Christ and recognizes that the only acceptable place that she can put this fragrant ointment is on the feet of Jesus, right? That's the only place. And perhaps she thought, you know, it doesn't even belong there, but I have nowhere else to put it. And I want us to think about this, this for a moment. The most expensive thing that Mary probably owned was only fit for the lowest part of the body of Christ, right? It takes great humility to be able to see that and to recognize that. You know, uh, not long ago, I accidentally used my wife's expensive face cream for my feet. <laughs> because my feet felt really dry. Right? I, did not, I did not read. <laughs> she was so mad. I didn't read the, the box. Right? And so, thought, man, my feet feel really good. right? Oh, it's, it's awesome. Um, and, you know, if I did it on purpose... I think that would be horribly prideful, wouldn't it, right? Like, if, you know, if in my estimation, you know, what's good for your face is only good for the dry skin of my feet, right? That's a horrible uh, display of pride, right? But, you know, when you place this on, on Christ, right, and in, in this story, you realize what's going on, right? You realize how, how Mary is perceiving her Savior. And I think it illustrates the level of humility it took for Mary to realize that even if she poured out all of this ointment on the feet of Jesus, it would still not be able to capture the true worth of her Savior. In fact, she would take it a step further and wipe uh, his feet with her hair. And this action has all sorts of implications in Middle Eastern cultures, but one of them is that women do not put down their hair in public. And actually, that action is only reserved for the man that they have given their lives to in marriage. And so in a real sense, Mary is displaying a complete surrendering of her life to Christ. And that is what worship is. Right? It is a surrendering of your life uh, at the foot of Christ. And, and so when you end up juxtaposing Mary's response to that of Judas, you can see this vast difference Unlike Mary, Judas is aloof. And from that very far distance, he is able to really unfairly criticize Mary. And to make himself look good, he says something that sounds, I think, just as good now as it does then. This expensive ointment could have been sold and the money given to the poor. What can anyone say to that, right? There's nothing you can say, especially in a world that elevates justice to such a high degree, there's absolutely nothing you can say to something like that. And we live in a very pragmatic and very utilitarian part of the world, and we're quick to assume that worship has no real value to it. And some people, I think, will use statements like that to hide their own self-righteousness, perhaps their lack of faith, or even their greed as was the case of Judas. And, you know, I don't want to bring back bad memories. Uh, during uh, the, all the social unrest of the pandemic, there were, you know, pockets of Christians, at least in our church, that questioned the efficacy of prayer, right? Why are we praying when so many people are suffering? Why are we praying, right, first, 
when a man, George Floyd, has been murdered? You know, why is that our, always our first response? Instead of rallying people right, to go out to protest, raising money as quickly as possible. And I think one of the main reasons uh, for praying first, for worshiping first, is to really discern our own hearts and to see what is motivating our response. Is it really out of love that we say these things? Is it really out of love even for Christ or the poor? Uh, Or is there perhaps a a self-serving agenda? And I think what worship does is it exposes us. It exposes uh, the pride within our hearts. And, you know, as a church in San Francisco that has served the poor for the past decade, I have seen the poison of pride in everyone, including myself, right? Anyone who tries to champion the cause of justice and the poor, right, they have to battle this insatiable pride that is within them. And it becomes toxic to a church when justice becomes elevated above worship, actually. Right? The church is first a worshiping institution. And out of that worship, we serve the poor. Out of that worship, we fight for the cause of justice. We can never invert those two, right? And obviously, true worship uh, has justice as a part of it, right? But it's always subservient to it. And again, why? Because it's in the presence of God that we realize we are not the Messiah, that our sin is also a part of the world's problems. We don't stand outside of the world's problems. We are actually a part of it because of our sin, and we don't have all the answers to the ills of society. Imagine that, right? I think if some of us heard what Jesus said in live, in kind of a, a live feed, if he would say, the poor you would have, you'll always have with you, I think some of us would be offended by that, right? Jesus, how could you say such a thing? Don't you know our capacity? We can change the world, Right? But he says, no, you'll always have the poor with you. And what's interesting, during that time, we went out to our neighborhood and asked our, our black uh, neighbors, you know, how they were doing. And, you know, if it would be helpful for them if we did something. And they said, no, please let us mourn and grieve at this time by ourselves. Right? Let us, as a community, mourn and grieve what has happened. Right? And, you know, so many were so quick to say, you know, we need to do this and that. And, you know, some of them actually had, uh, I think, the right perspective. They said, you know what, we've had this problem in the past. We have this problem now. And I'm sure we'll have these problems in the future, right? Let us grieve and mourn. And it's humbling, isn't it, for us to think we don't have all the answers to the problems of society. And that perhaps only God does. And we need to first begin in prayer, right? First begin in prayer and then see how he moves us, right? Not that we can't do anything, right? I'm not saying just pray and worship all day long and don't do anything, right? That's the, uh, that's the wrong response, right, to this uh, example. But do that first, then as God leads you, right? As you see where he's moving and working, join him in that work. And, you know, it takes a, a certain level of humility to confess these things, and then do our part and allow God to do the rest. And, you know, this is why the scriptures tell us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, right? We need his grace, especially in perilous times like this. And um, three stages of pride that distort our, our ability to worship genuinely. Let's, uh, I want to just go through that really quickly. First, pride gives us a, a false view of ourselves, okay? 
And it's hard, right, to worship God truly if we have a false view of who we are in light of who God is. And the biblical understanding of pride is the human ego being puffed up uh, underneath the appearance of strength, right? And, and underneath that, often there is a little substance. And, you know, when my kids were younger, uh, I would occasionally watch square ba- uh, SpongeBob SquarePants with them. And uh, I don't know if you guys remember, how many are SpongeBob fans? Um, my wife would wonder, why are you laughing so hard at these things? Anyways, uh, there was an episode where SpongeBob brought a suit that made him look muscular, right? But it was nothing more than air. Um, and, you know, and, you know he, he would go, you know, puffed up. Like, he looked, you know, he looked really jacked. But, you know, when he would go to lift up a weight, like, his arms would fall off, right? And, you know, I thought that was hilarious, but maybe you guys don't think it's that funny. But I think that is, you know, just a, a, a great picture of what pride looks like. It's an inflation of our ego, right? But underneath it, there's no substance, right? There is no real strength. And think of the things, right, that puff us up, like money or success or reputation. And we think that gives us strength, right? But it's nothing more than air. That's all it is, right? It's in comparison to God. It is actually valueless, and it cannot give you the strength that you're looking for. And from there, this false view of ourselves ends up, and I think this is the, the saddest thing, it takes us away from the presence of God because in our pride, we don't see our need for him, right? And worship is all about seeing our need for Christ. This is why we often sing, I need you, right? Uh, and, and pride keeps us from really understanding that that's the case. And I think that is the saddest consequence of, of pride. And I love the way Tim Keller describes um, how pride keeps us away from the presence of God. He says, spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. That is the ultimate danger. And I think from there, things escalate. The third thing is that pride, it makes us incredibly fragile and sensitive, if you haven't realized To carry the analogy of the balloon a little further, the more inflated you become with pride, the easier it is for even the smallest disturbance to cause your ego to pop. One prick, right, of a a sharp object, and, and you're done. You know, this is why some people cannot take even the slightest bit of criticism because everything becomes a threat to your perfectly created view of yourself. Right, And you see this all the time in our world. And the thing is, when we worship God, he's always kind of poking at you, isn't he? Right? You know, there's things that he wants to refine in you to help you grow. And pride keeps us from that. Right? If God didn't want to see change in your life, I don't think he would be God. Right? He wants to see some degree of sanctification, if you want to use a big word, of growth in your life. Because he loves you. And this is why worship, at least true worship, is so important uh, for ourselves and for our, our well-being. And the thing is, everybody has to derive their sense of identity and worth from something or someone. Usually, we look for those answers in the things that are most important to us. In other words, we get our identity and our worth from the object of our worship. And you will either find your self-worth in the presence of God, 
or you'll set, settle for the many idols of this world. And, you know, if God is not worthy of your devotion, not worth making your priority, not worth serving, then you'll ultimately find something more worthwhile to worship. Everybody does. And if there is a problem in the way we live and perhaps what we're becoming, often it has roots in what we have given the highest priority to in our lives. And in the Bible, what we see is that false worship is called idolatry. And it has devastating impact on the people of God. And although God's people never really cease worshiping, at least in form and in practice, they do constantly struggle with making other gods their priority. And obviously, in our day and age, we don't have statues. We don't have, like, idols, uh, physical idols. But our world is filled with idols. And I, I think one of them, Andrew Carnegie, I think he points out very vividly. Um, Andrew Carnegie, the uh, steel magnate from the Industrial Revolution, incredibly wealthy. He was also... Uh, Oddly, he denied Christianity, opposed it, but he ironically understood the power of idols far more than I think many believers. And early in his 30s, he wrote about the success that he you know, had begun to amass in the steel industry. And he used the word idols and the dangers of idolatry. As a non-Christian, he used that word. And in a memo to himself, this is what he actually wrote. He, he wrote, man must have an idol. They must. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol more debasing than the worship of money. Whatever I engage in, I must push inordinately, therefore, should I be careful to choose the life which will be the most elevating in character. Right? He recognized, you know, if I am to become who I need to become, right, I need to worship the, the right thing. Sadly, he never found God. And uh, in the same memo, he would make a resolution to retire from the steel industry at the age of 35. And do you guys think he actually fulfilled that? No, absolutely not. He did not retire at 35. It was a resolution that he would not keep. And the fears that he had of losing his soul to ambition and power would ultimately be realized. Today we know Carnegie by the over 2,000 libraries uh, that have been built with his name the university buildings that, that bear, well, the university that bears his name, right? Um, and the many buildings in Pennsylvania that bear uh, his name as well. And all of these things promote his legacy. But if you were to go back in time and ask his employees, what do you think about Ar Ar uh, Andrew Carnegie? He would be remembered as a cruel taskmaster who demanded 12-hour shifts in, condi in conditions so unbearable that most would die in their 40s from accident or disease. Many, right? many would die. And I think that highlights the great tragedy of Carnegie's life. Is he considered earth to be his heaven, right? And so he worshipped the things of this earth. And he did not see that he was making earth a living hell for many who worked for him. And, and sadly, he had rejected the only thing, I think, that could have elevated his character so that he could love his neighbor as himself and really leave an eternal legacy. And so if we were to understand how can we best serve the cause of justice to love the poor, it is to have our vertical relationship with God right first. Right? That's what's most important. And then we can have this horizontal relationship with one another and with humanity uh, fit 
underneath that. And I think the, the clearest alternative that is given to us is that the God of the Bible is more valuable, more worthy of worship than our careers, our pursuit of wealth, our fame, even our family, even our own lives. And, you know, I think for some, you know, this may seem fanatical, but it is only when you give God the worship that he is so worthy of that you're able to place the appropriate value on everything else in your life, right? Yeah, it's like a standard. You place this in the right place, then everything else fits neatly underneath that. And the problem is when good things become ultimate things, they eventually consume us and master us because that is the initial nature of worship. Whatever we worship will end up mastering us. We are always subservient to the object of our worship. And whatever you worship will sadly or for your benefit demand your life. And so what, we, what I'm trying to say is this, is that Jesus is not alone in his high demand for your life. Every idol beckons with the same level of commitment if you begin to see it. And I think, you know, as we kind of wrap up this message, you know, perhaps the greatest danger of misplaced value is when we fall into the trap of elevating ourselves in light of the object we worship. And I think it's by its very definition, you will always see yourself as being worth less than the things that you idolize. That's the human heart. And so if you find your worth in your success, you will only be as good as your next promotion. If you find your ultimate meaning in relationships, your view of yourself will depend on who you are with or on the relationship that you're involved in. If you find your value in your children, your life will be measured by their obedience, even when they decide to walk away from your control. But if you find your worth in Christ, you rise above all of these things that entrap you or have the potential to entrap you, and you can see your own worth and the worth of others. And so there's so much at stake in this thing that we call worship. And it doesn't end here on these Sunday mornings. And, you know, I... I became a Christian, I think, during a transition point in contemporary worship, as I shared in the last message. And uh, the artists we listened to were known, you know, uh, really for their lives as much as their music. And uh, some of my heroes uh, kind of growing up in the faith, one was Rich Mullins, who wrote the classic song, Our God is an Awesome God. I don't know if you guys know that song. It's so old, right? But some of you know it. Uh, But he... uh, refused to get paid more than the average salary of wherever he lived. And he wanted all of his salary, um, all the rest of the profits from his records to be given to charity. And even when he became a missionary, actually in Central America, he said, no, I will live on the wages of uh, the people that um, you know, I'm living with, and the rest should be given. There are also artists like Keith Green, who... Um, I don't know, uh, you know if this is true or not, right? because I wasn't there. It was said that he once wept for an hour at a concert because the crowd had come. He discerned that the crowd had come to see him rather than to exalt their savior. And I'm thinking, like, why would you have a concert then? <laughs> right? But anyways, <laughs> that's me being cynical, right? <laughs> but, I mean, 
and he just wept. I'd be so ticked off. Like, I came to see you, right? <laughs> Why are you weeping in front of a piano? Right? <laughs> Anyways, uh, you know, God has to do a work of, you know, worship in my own heart. Um, but I don't think, you know, not to sound like old and like reminiscing about the good old days, I, I think, you know, there's even in the newer uh, worship leaders, you know, I think that's something that, that we see in them as well. Kim Walker Smith, who is one of my uh, wise favorite um, worship leaders at Jesus Culture, uh, she was asked uh, by an aspiring worship leader how she could grow in her uh, worship leading, and she responded by saying, start by cleaning the bathrooms in your church. Ha-ha. She always says, ha-ha, right? <laughs> right? Start. And I thought, you know what? Here's someone that gets it, right? Someone who is prominent, uh, prominent in terms of her fame. Everyone knows her, but she gets it. Start. If you want to be a good anointed worship leader, humble yourself. And I think some of, or much of the authority that she carries, and I think, you know, uh, you know, Grace, wonderful worship leader, right? There's authority in her worship. But those who carry authority, uh, Daniel as well, those who carry authority in your worship, right, it's because they've humbled themselves before God, right? That's what's happening. And, um, Maybe one last thing here. Uh, Glenn Packham, uh, he actually write, he has a whole book about his experience with the Desperation Band, who we know from the song Amazed, right? Lord, I'm amazed by you. All of us probably grew up singing that song. Uh, in his book, he writes about his own personal thoughts about the state of contemporary worship, and this is what he writes. He writes, I was getting frustrated with trying to, it's a long quote, trying to fit many sermons in between songs trying to keep an often adolescent crowd from mistaking emotional sensationalism for the genuine manifest presence of God. But it was more than that. It wasn't just the people or the context of the events. It was me. I became increasingly aware of how tainted things could become because of my own ego. I liked being on stage. I liked when people knew my songs. It was becoming harder to tell the difference between the rush of an adrenaline high from the crowds and the music and the soaring refrains and the wind of the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah, so thoughtful, right? He understood. You know, there's great danger, right, in worship because we can mistake one thing for the genuine thing. And I think this highlights, his quote highlights what is at stake in our worship and worship being true. We can either experience the transforming power of the Holy Spirit or have a very poor substitute, which is often emotional inspiration. And we cannot afford to get those two things confused. And that leads us to our last point, which is the fact that true worship is costly. It is. Uh, It's not easy to come by. And it has to cost you something, because it's only when we give God the worship that he is so richly deserving of that we begin to experience the transforming power of worship in, in our lives. And, you know, one of my favorite stories, actually, from the Old Testament is found at the end of 2 Samuel, where God tells King David to make an altar and offer up sacrifices. And uh, this was actually after David disobeyed God by taking a census of all of his fighting men. And God had strictly forbidden him, don't count your men, right? And why would he do that? Well, David had begun to idolize his military might, right? 
He had begun to make an idol of his own power. And so God judged him by killing 70,000 people through a pestilence, right? He got rid of the idol in essence. And as part of the reconciliation, the peace, God tells David, well, then go to the house of Verona, which is a man, and offer up sacrifices on his threshing floor. And so David goes there, and obviously Verona recognizes the king, and he offers to give him everything that is needed for the sacrifice for free. He says, you know what, you're the king, right? It's my honor, my privilege to give this to you. Uh, and it's such a generous gesture. But I, I think David realized what was at stake in this act of worship, right? That he needed to give, him, give God something more than just this free, cheap act. And this is what he tells Arona in 2 Samuel 24. It says, but the king said to Arona, no but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And I think that's a wonderful approach to our worship of God, that when I come in, I will not give to the Lord that which has cost me nothing. And there is something, isn't there, right? Uh, when we come, there's time that we're offering. Hopefully there's a heart. Hopefully on Saturdays, right, you're preparing yourself, right, to come into the presence of God. Make this act costly for yourself, right? Turn it into something worthwhile. And if we want to take this principle even further, I think, you know, I think um, the Apostle Paul teaches it very well. I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And then in Romans 12, 1, right, he says, in light of God's mercy, brothers and sisters, in light of his mercy, right, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, for that is what? Your spiritual act of worship. That's the highest thing. Giving of yourselves is the highest act of worship. And I just want to end with this. Pastor John Piper does a wonderful job of outlining four practical applications of renouncing and giving everything to Christ. Renouncing all means that if we must choose between Christ and anything else, we will choose Christ, right? Have that fixed in your mind. Renouncing all, second, means that we will deal with everything in ways that draw us near to Christ so that we gain more of Christ and enjoy more of him by the way, by the way we relate to everything. Renouncing all means that we will seek to deal with the things of this world in ways that show that they are not our treasure, but rather that Christ is our treasure. And finally, renouncing all means that if we lose any or all the things this world can offer, we will not lose our joy, nor our treasure, or our life, because Christ is our joy and our treasure and our life. And brothers and sisters, um, you know, maybe the praise team can come up here as we just wrap up things here. Um, you know, the final culmination of renouncing all the highest cost to worship in Christ is to be treated as he was once treated, to be persecuted as he was persecuted, to carry our cross just as he carried his. And the closer you are to Christ, the closer you get to this reality, right? Some of it hard, some of it laced with suffering. And what we see in this passage is that Lazarus is unknowingly in this place of honor. 
He's reclining at the feet of Christ in fellowship at the beginning of the, the meal. Right? There's an intimacy there that Lazarus and Christ share. And because he's a living testimony of the gospel and the power of the, the resurrection, what we see is that he is actually subjected to the same fate as his Savior. And we read in the very last section, last verses that we uh, had this morning, that the priest made plans to put him to death as well. And to be a worshiper of Christ sometimes comes at the highest price, but that's the honor that Christians have sung about throughout the ages. One of my favorite hymns, were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a tribute far too small. Love so amazing, so so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I hope each and every one of us are on that journey to making that refrain a reality in our lives. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray together. And let's enter into God's presence and into a time of worship. You know, this morning, I don't know where you are in your journey of faith. I think a message like this is something, if I'm honest, I'm preaching to myself. Right? And I think there were times in my own life where, you know, I could have said, I uh, would have said in my youth, Lord, I will die for you. Right? Um, but that was a lot of youthfulness. Right? It was worship. Uh, that maybe inspired me emotionally, but these were things that I said without really realizing or recognizing what the cost was. Now that I'm a little bit older, I understand the cost of serving the Lord in certain ways. This is all too real, right? And part of my flesh says, no, I don't want to, right? I don't want to die to myself. I don't want to be a living sacrifice. And brothers and sisters, it's okay to have that struggle. It is, it is. But the only way to overcome that struggle is to see the Lord high and lifted, amen. To see his worth. And in light of what he's worth, you begin to recognize, oh, you know what? All the things he's asking me to give up, even if it's my life itself, well, he's more than worthy of it, amen. He is more than worthy of these things. And so, wherever you are in your journey, could you begin to surrender things to him? Little, big, it doesn't matter. I think God looks at your heart, right? Begin to surrender things, right? Say, Lord, I give you these things. I give you my pride. I I pour contempt on my sin. I give you everything, right? As much as I can today. Let's pray. Let's offer ourselves to the Lord.